Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 129 as we continue our series through the Psalms of Ascents, Psalms of Degrees, the Psalms of Going Up. We're on Psalm 129, which means we're just five psalms away from finishing this series on 15 psalms. And uh, when we started it at the beginning of our separation, I, I didn't anticipate that we would get this far along um, while we were separated, but um, the Lord did, and we continue our study. So Psalm 129, I want to begin this morning by just reading the psalm. It's a short psalm again. It is eight verses, but if you'll read along with me as I read Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Psalm 129 is a psalm that is a lament. It begins with this cry, this complaint, and it finishes with a different type of genre. Um, we refer to our music selections or our favorite types of music as genres. It's kind of a fun word to say, but there are certain types of psalms as well. And this is one of those psalms that we haven't dealt with yet, and it's called an imprecatory psalm, a psalm of praying or invoking a curse on God's enemies or your own enemies. Now, just by stating that, there should be some opposition in your mind about whether these are valid prayers for us to pray, or perhaps you're already thinking about somebody you'd like to send an imprecatory postcard to. I hope we'll... Um, study this passage in its context, and I'm hoping today that God will give us grace to understand what is the purpose of these imprecatory prayers. During this stay at home, um, I don't know about other parents, but we have started to, my wife and I, get at our wits in about what do we do to try to um, make the time filled, what can we do together as a family. We played about every board game under the sun, and they've mostly ended in fights. No, I'm kidding. Um, some of them have. But uh, what do we do with our time? So I had this idea, my wife had this idea, that maybe we should introduce our youngest son to some movies that we enjoyed when we were younger. And so I introduced my youngest son, whose birthday is tomorrow, um, to the Rocky movies. So we started, I think, with Rocky three, and then we worked up, and then we came back and got the first two. And I was just pleased at how excited he was to watch each movie in the series. And of course, the movie theme, precious to all those that live near Philadelphia for sure. Um, but this rags to riches, this American dream story of Rocky Balboa, the uneducated, kind-hearted, working-class Italian-American boxer who was working as a debt collector in the first movie, and then he is able to become a world champion boxer. But each series sets Rocky Balboa against someone who 
is somewhat of a villain. Now, now some of them worse than others, but he was always the underdog. And either they were proud, represented a country, time the fight takes place you're in rocky's corner i mean you have basically deposited yourself into rocky balboa you are incarnated rocky because we noticed at the end of each movie it wasn't just my wife and i um we're a little embarrassed to say that we still do this but it was my son i mean we felt like when he won the fight we had won the fight we were jumping up in our living room hands raised lived it together what, what makes movies like that um, attractive to many of us in our population? Well, I, there's something about the underdog. There, there's something about what we feel in terms of justice being served. That's what makes movies like that blockbusters, because the, the little guy wins. The person who's been looked down upon and pressed down, justice is kind of served right there in the boxing ring. Well, there, there's a sense in which these imprecatory psalms are that way. And to understand them, you have to understand the big picture of justice and injustice and how our God deals with that. The word imprecate, and if you're taking notes, if you downloaded the handout, this may be an unfamiliar word to you. And I don't want this to be a heady message. I want it to be a message for our hearts. But the word imprecate simply means to utter a curse. Imprecatory, imprecatory psalms are those in which the author calls on God to curse his enemies. Now, this seems to be in contradiction to Jesus' teaching, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus taught us to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek when someone has hit us on the other cheek. We're to pray for them and bless them, not curse them. So, so how can... The psalmist pray such things. Now, this would be considered a rated PG version of the imprecatory psalms, for sure. Because there are other imprecatory psalms that, that are much more violent. Just so you get a sample, Psalm 55, verse 15, says, Let death steal over them. Psalm 58, 6, Break the teeth of their mouths. This is a prayer. Psalm 69, 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Psalm 109.9 May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. And without quoting it, there's another psalm that talks about their children being cast against stones and being killed. I mean, this, these are violent psalms. They're the kind of psalms that you don't typically choose as a scripture reading for the opening or closing of any service for gathered worship. In fact, if you are reading through them in your daily Bible reading, there may be a, a sense of, of embarrassment. I mean, how can these fit with the Christian ethic? The end of this psalm, I hope you caught it, was imprecatory. The first part is lament, crying, complaining, and the second part is praying for a curse on the enemies of God and those that have been the enemies of God's people. Now, how can we get our mind wrapped around these psalms and ask the question, what should Christians do with them? Should we pray imprecatory prayers? How should Christians respond to these prayers? So that's the goal today. 
just to open up this topic again, I don't usually have this many introductory pictures, but I think we need this to help us understand imprecatory prayers and precatory psalms. But most of our kids played with or either owned one of those blue and red plastic balls. You know what I'm talking about, right? They have openings with different shapes, and then you have the yellow pieces that correspond with the shapes, and you're supposed to put the corresponding shape inside of the opening. What's always riveting is watching a toddler attempt to shove a triangle in an opening shape of a square. But that's essentially what we do sometimes when we come to passages like the imprecatory Psalms. We, we mismatch between reality and our perception of reality. What I'm, I'm meaning is that we're walking through the world with our sense of what reality is, and too often we don't have the lenses of God's big truth, of His big story, of what's actually happening in our world. And, and I want to suggest to you that there is a place, a very grace-filled place in the life of believers who are experiencing injustice, surrounded by other people who are experiencing injustice for imprecatory psalms. With these psalms, our mismatch between reality and what we perceive as reality causes us to try to explain them away. I mean, from the earliest time, there were heretics, dubbed heretics, decreed heretics by the church, because they would say things like, the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. I mean, Jesus is love and sweetness and blowing kisses, and then you've got this God of the Old Testament who's filled with wrath. Well, we obviously know that the scriptures should not be divided up that way. We can't take the Thomas Jefferson approach where we cut out passages that we don't like and kind of cut, cut and paste, copy and paste the passages that we like. And then these imprecatory psalms are actually quoted in the New Testament. So, so they're given some validation. And there's actually some imprecatory prayers that are sprinkled in the New Testament Actually, really, only one that we could say is a, a prayer, and it's those, those martyrs that are underneath the altar that we see and hear of in the book of Revelation, where they're saying, how long, Lord, before you, before you bring recompense and judgment on those who have persecuted us? They're praying for the wrath of God to actually come on them. So, so how do we process these imprecatory psalms, and is there a place for them? I believe there's a place for them. I believe that they're vital to the pilgrim's journey. And that's what these 15 psalms are all about, right? They're, they're psalms that they would sing on their journey to the annual feast, but they were a, re, they were a um, reflection of the pilgrim journey, of sojourning, of being resident aliens, that this world is not our home, we're just a passing through. So, so here's the big picture for imprecatory psalms, like Psalm 129. I've got this on your handout, and if you don't have a handout, this may help you in studying the scriptures when you come along these psalms to have this written out. It's quite long. Well, it's not too long. It's kind of middle long. <laughs> Here it is. While it's terrible thing, while it's a terrible thing to desire God's judgment to fall upon his enemies, it's worse still for evil to go unpunished. Say that again. While it is a terrible thing to desire God's judgment to fall upon his enemies, it is worse still for evil to go unpunished. So what we have in these imprecatory psalms is this longing 
for injustices to be dealt with, for them no longer to be swept under the rug, and for God to make things right, and for those who've set themselves up against the enemy as the enemy of God and His people, for there to be judgment. That's what these imprecatory psalms are about. It's not just about having the enemies of God be punished, but it's about God's judgment, not only on His enemies, but for evil to not go unpunished. Now, this this psalm divides up nicely into two sections, the first four verses and then the last four verses. But the way I'd like to deal with it is in, in three points. I want you to see the psalmist's affliction, then his expectation, and finally his imprecation. This is that imprecatory side to this prayer. First of all, the affliction. You'll notice he says in verse number one, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And this is familiar. He does this in an earlier psalm in this series of Psalms of Ascents. He'll say something and it's as though he's the choir master and he turns around to the rest of the choir and he says, repeat it now, Israel. And so he does that here. He says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say it. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth yet they have not prevailed against me. In one commentary that I was reading as I studied this passage, I thought it was, it was interesting to consider it this way, that while other nations will talk about their, their accomplishments and brag about their accomplishments, Israel would often brag about its escapes. <laughs> it, it would often reflect upon the moment where it was almost defeated, but right in the nick of time. They were rescued. And he says, even from our youth, and this is a reflection on all of Israel's history, but what he's saying is, this is how horrible these afflictions were. He describes them in very picturesque terms in verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now my grandfather, both my grandfathers, planted gardens. But my dad's dad, I I remember particularly when he would plant his garden, he had one of these old plows. And it was the old style, wooden handles. Um, It had basically a blade that would furrow and make these furrows for the seed. And I remember how once he had tilled up that ground, he'd make those furrows. And sometimes I would see him sharpen that blade so that it would go into the sometimes red clay of South Carolina easier when he was trying to plant a garden. And and the picture here is of oxen pulling this plow along the backs of those that were being persecuted. It's quite a, a, a grotesque visual, but what he's saying is from their youth, from the genesis of Israel, all the way from Exodus, when those slave drivers in Exodus were so cruel to them, This has been the history of Israel. They've experienced injustice. They have experienced this cruel treatment, even from their youth. But I want you to notice something that I think is really important for us in Psalms of Lament, which is the first part of this psalm, and Psalms of Imprecatory. Do you notice how the psalmist here uses personal pronouns to basically deposit himself into plurality? I don't want to use big words, but, but he's, he's basically using the me, but he means we. Don't miss it. He, he says, 
Greatly have they afflicted me for my youth. And then he says, let Israel say, in the plural, let all of you say, please respond to this. Respond to this in chorus. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. You know, as I was reflecting on this this week, and even weeks prior, I've been struck by the fact that I struggle with being able to say me and mean we, or say we and mean me. I'm not trying to um, be cute in my verbiage. I'm simply saying that what we're told to do as God's people is to deposit ourselves into the woes and injustices and difficulties of other people and feel it as though it were our own. Some people have called this incarnational. It just simply means as our Lord became incarnate, it, it is empathy. It is empathetic ministry to other people and feeling their sufferings as though it was your own. I don't believe we're good at this, but the psalmist here is giving us an example. He's not just lamenting. He's doing something you see often in Scripture where those that are weeping are joined in community with other mourners, other weepers. And those that are rejoicing are joined with other rejoicers because we're, after all, a body. And we're able to cry when others cry and weep with those who weep, but rejoice with those that rejoice. But I've been convicted about my lack of ability or my lack of obedience, my lack of Christ-likeness in this category. And some of it has been taught to me, and I've been rebuked during this time of shutdown and, and the various views of how this is impacting other people. We all have our, our biases. We have to be honest about that, about how the shutdown is impacting us, whether medically or perhaps financially. We all view it from a perspective, right? But have you noticed how difficult it is to, to deposit yourself into the situation of another person? Maybe even a greater example, and one that's much, much more important than this current situation which will pass, is being able to relate to those who have, in society, in culture, in history, have experienced great injustices. And trying to reflect and say me, but mean we, and say we and mean me. Recently, I had the opportunity to speak with some of our, our African-American brothers right here from East Brandywine. And, and there was a purpose for it. Our elders wanted to just talk with them and hear what life is like for them. Because I'm going to be honest with you, my perspective has been very selfish. I say me and I mean me. Because I don't see that racism is still an issue. I don't know what it's like to be fearful and to have to really plan my life with this cloud over me. And essentially, my me was, if it's not happening to me, it's not happening to we. But I was served a few nights ago when some of our brothers very candidly said, you're thinking about me, but you're not thinking about we. Because what we go through and what we face in terms of injustice and a culture that even though you have the 
captive or the captors and the captive now living alongside each other when there's no more captivity, there's still remnants of that in our society. And this is an example. I'm not saying this is the only example from this passage. Please don't think that I've, I've got a hobby horse here. But it is an example for us to understand as, as God's people, can we grow in saying me but meaning we? Learning to listen to others who've experienced injustice and inequities in our culture, in our churches, that we don't feel, we don't experience, but we actually listen to them so that we can relate to them with empathy and with care and with Christ-like love and be able to say me but mean we. We have suffered it, even though I have never personally felt those fears. I've never personally been um, pulled out and singled out like many of them have. Can I get to the point as a believer where I can say me but mean we and envelop myself into their suffering? See, the psalmist is doing that. He's saying the affliction is not just me, it's we. He learned to weep with those who weep. And mourn with those who mourn. And if I could make it again to the application of what we're currently living in, I think there would be a lot less angst on social media and interaction with one another if we began to, to try to reflect, what is it like to be in that brother or sister situation? W- would I see this whole scenario differently if I had that in common? You see, this is the psalmist affliction. And it's, it is a lament psalm, but it's a lament in community. I want you to see also the psalmist's expectation. The psalmist's expectation is that this is not going to continue. Look at verse 4. The Lord is what? Righteous. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now what is he saying here? He, he's saying that his situation hasn't changed. It's not like, in verse number four, everything got better. I mean, this is the end of one of those movies where they lived happily ever after. No, no, he's looking and knowing that God is ultimately righteous. Last week, I, I just briefly gave an application about making a biography of God. Um, some might have misunderstood that somehow our finite minds could comprehend God in his infinite character. No. What I was referring to is in your bombs. Every time you see a passage that tells you something about God's character, write it down. My wife has done this for years, and she journals, and when she sees a new characteristic or maybe another verse that talks about God being her rock or her refuge or her faithful guard or whatever, she will highlight it in her journal. That's what I meant by a biography of God. And here he's giving us one of those, the Lord is righteous. Now that sounds like a word that fits in Christianese, doesn't it? I mean, you hear it in church, but what does it mean? Well, the first letters ought to help us, right? I mean, you look at verse 4, and it says, the Lord is righteous. And those first five letters tell us that He's right. He's always right. He's always just. And that knowledge of knowing that God is always right and always just is giving the psalmist this great expectation that God will make all things right. And he says, here's what he did. He broke the cord. You see this? He broke the cord of the wicked. Now, this stays with the earlier imagery, the earlier imagery of the plow. So if you can imagine the oxen who are tied to the plow, and he 
decimates the cord so that the oxen can't any longer plow the back of the ones that are being persecuted. The picture here, though, is that the, that the Lord, because he is righteous, is going to deal with the wicked. I don't want us to miss this. When you get to the New Testament, God's righteousness is displayed in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And in Romans, we find that that righteousness is something that's provided outside of us. We are unrighteous. In other words, we have done anything but right. We've done wrong. Those are called sins, transgressions, iniquities. They've separated us from God. So the real enemy of our soul is not an external enemy. It is the sin problem that we have. But Jesus Christ, the righteous, he died for our sins so that we could be made righteous, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. So in terms of dealing with injustice internally, I, I don't want us to miss this. The psalmist is able to deal with this with his expectation, not only that God is his righteousness, but that God is righteous. And he will righteously deal with all injustices. Do you see how there's already in the Old Testament, and already but not yet, God's going to deal with the enemies of Israel. God's going to deal with the enemies of his people, his own enemies. And I want to say it again, while it's a terrible thing to feel that we want to desire God's judgment, wouldn't you agree that it's worse still for evil to go unpunished? That leads us to the final part of this psalm, and it's the imprecatory part, and I want to finish here. The psalm's imprecation, the imprecatory calling down a curse on the enemies of God. How should we process this? Well, the psalmist is asking God to put Israel's tormentors to shame. He uses imagery again. Look at verse 5. May all who hate Zion, Zion's a picture of, of the holy city, Jerusalem, it's a picture of the location of God with his people. He says, all those who hate Zion, put them to shame. Turn them backwards. This is just poetry that means, let them be totally confused and lost in life. Let their GPS get all screwed up where they don't know where they're going. They don't know where they've been. They don't know how to get to where they want to go. Verse 6 says, let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. Some of you know what this is like to have some mold. Um, and even maybe even in your gutters, if you don't clean them out completely, just the little bit of dust in your gutter can cause some seeds to, to sprout. And all of a sudden you have vegetation in your gutters that's growing. But generally speaking, if you can get some hot sun on that vegetation in those gutters that desperately need to be cleaned out men <clears throat> maybe something you can do while you're at home but what happens that sun because there's no depth of soil it withers and the picture is make them wither may they be like a reaper who can't get even his hands full with the crop he goes further he says i don't want anybody to even bless them nobody should give them a blessing Please, God, don't let anybody walk by them and say, the Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. May his blessing be upon you. No doxology for them. No benediction for them. Why would this be okay? So I want us to just 
imagine ourselves in the prayer closet. You go home today, and you think about, should I pray an imprecatory prayer about so-and-so? I mean, is this right to do? Well, we need again to understand the context. Remember that little illustration I gave you about the the red and blue ball that has those yellow shaped that you're placing in. Here's the perspective. Maybe we could illustrate it like this. If your child were asking, why these prayers? Maybe you could say it to them like this. Well, imagine, son or daughter, that an assassin came in and and killed your mother. This is a horrible thing. And then the sheriff and all the police are out looking for this criminal who's brought this tragedy to our family and hurt your mother. Can you imagine us praying that God would lead the authorities to capture this person, that he would have to have justice, and that he wouldn't be able to harm anyone else? You know, for most young people, they get that. They, yes, praying for justice to be served. Or maybe I could illustrate it like this as parents, and I think all of us have gone through something similar. Imagine your child, your young child, darting out into the road, and almost being hit by an oncoming car, and it just barely misses your child. How do you react? I mean, I know how I react. It's, it's yelling at the child, yelling at the car, yelling at both of them. What's happening in that moment? I mean, is that, is that sinful anger? Maybe. But, but it's mostly... It's mostly not indifference. It's the kind of passion that something happening to the one loved causes us to react with such anger and such desire and passion for justice to take place or for gratitude that it didn't. And we feel that, that, that how close that danger was. Now I want to give you those illustrations for you to get a little bit into the psalm and understand what the psalmist is not doing. Here's some cautions. The psalmist is not praying that his personal enemies would just have a bad day or have a bad life. He he is actually praying for the promised justice of God to take place. This goes all the way back to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, the first three verses, is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. It was a promise that God gave to Abraham. Those who bless you, I will curse you, I will curse. And that has continued to this day with God's people. I mean, you've heard preachers wisely say, don't mess with Israel. Don't mess with Israel. God keeps his promises. And God also keeps his promises and his covenant with his people. And this picture is, God, you promised. We know we sinned against you. You sent us to exile. But you promised that those who cursed us, like Babylon, those who have mistreated us, like Egypt, that you would deal with them. And we're praying for your justice to come. Now, how do we deal with this as believers in closing? First of all, praying the imprecatory prayers remind us of God's absolute holiness. There's... There's, there's too much fickleness when we view sin as believers today. There's such an emphasis, and God is a God of love, but that He would never deal with sin, that His righteous wrath would never be unleashed. Folks, it will be. The day of the Lord is coming. And His holiness should lead us to purity of life. It should lead us for a longing 
where there'll be no more sin and the prince and power of the air will be defeated forever. Gordon Wanham has said, well, these psalms can serve us to wake us up from our amnesia about God. What he's saying is, we, we too often forget the righteous attributes of our holy God. And these imprecatory prayers remind us the day's coming where he's going to set all things right. Secondly, praying these imprecatory prayers help us identify with the hurting. I've already mentioned that. But I, again, want to confess to you and ask you for your prayers for me. And perhaps you need to be prayed for this way too. I don't empathize with others like I should. I don't, I don't deposit myself in the hurts and the challenges of, for instance, the persecuted church right now. When was the last time I thought about the saints in North Korea who are being sent to labor camps to die simply because they're Christians? Or those around the planet who are suffering, and we're told in Hebrews 13, don't forget those who are imprisoned as though you were there yourself. So these kinds of prayers help us go from me and mean we. And say we and mean me. And thirdly, praying these imprecatory prayers cause us to long for home. Don't they? That's what this pilgrim journey is about. We were once an enemy, but we've been made a friend now. Through the gospel. That's why in Revelation 6, those ones who had been martyred are praying for God to deal with those who have persecuted them and martyred them. Let's remember, these imprecatory prayers are not vengeful in the sense of taking out one's enemy. In fact, none of these imprecatory psalms lead us to take matters in our own hands. Just the opposite. They give us the opportunity to pray out our feelings, to pray out our desire for justice to take place. But let's not forget how this ends. In the Old Testament, God is viewed in many of the psalms Stay with me, as a righteous warrior who's going to come and defeat the enemies of his people. He's going to decimate them. They're going to be his footstool for his son. And then we come to the New Testament and we are expecting longing for the day when the righteous warrior, he is given the same characteristics, Jesus, the warrior who will come riding on the white horse and he will place all his enemies don't you long for that day? That's what the word Maranatha means. It's, it's kind of two Aramaic words just kind of crashed together. Even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come back. Whenever we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's an imprecatory prayer. You might not have known it. But you're praying for the day of the Lord to come. For the righteous warrior to come and make all things right. What side are you on? Have you bowed the knee to this righteous warrior? Have you bowed the knee to the Jesus who came humbly riding on a donkey to, to be a payment, a ransom, to redeem your soul the first time by his precious blood? If you haven't bowed the knee, the first time you will behold Jesus, he will be the righteous warrior. And I call on you today to trust in Jesus Christ completely. He is your righteousness. You are not righteous. I am not righteous. But Jesus is completely righteous. 
And that is the gift that is for you if you will turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Believer, consider making these imprecatory prayers part of your prayer time from time to time. And praying for Christ to come. Praying for Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus. Praying for the righteous warrior to set all things right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for even these difficult passages of Scripture that at first take cause our skin to curl. We react to them as though they are anti-Christian and don't fit the Christ-like ethic. But as we study them in context, we long for You to keep Your promises. And one of those promises is for You to make all things right for you to deal with all injustices. Even so come, Lord Jesus. We long to see the righteous warrior, to bow before him, and to see him crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. To say with our mouth and confess that he is Lord of lords. We long for that day. Even so come, Lord Jesus. And we ask, Father, that you would transform us as believers to begin to know what it's like to live in community, to share the injustices and the hurts and the trials and the deprivations of other believers and other people as though they were our own. Help us learn what it means to say me, but mean we, to weep with those who weep and to joy and rejoice and be happy and glad with those that are happy and glad and rejoicing. Lord, we pray these things for the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen.